Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Starting out kind of in remotely orthodox land and then just chipping away at, well, the Bible's not God's word. It's human words about God. Hey friends, welcome to the Elisa Childers podcast. I am so excited to bring you this discussion today with Ian Harbour as he walks us through deconstructing out of an evangelical faith into progressive Christianity, but then reconstructing back to a historic faith. It really blessed me to hear his story, his testimony, and I think it's going to bless you too. But I want to take a moment before we jump into that to tell you about today's sponsor. So Impact 360 is an amazing ministry that exists to help equip the next generation to live out their Christian worldview in a culture that is becoming increasingly more hostile to the Christian worldview. So I want to tell you specifically about something they have online called the Gen Z Lab. So after launching in partnership with the Barna Group, some groundbreaking research on Gen Z, we now know what this generation is facing. We know what they're thinking about. We know their opinions on certain things. But the question is, is are we equipped to lead them through the toughest questions that they're encountering every day? And this is what Gen Z Lab is for. Impact 360 created it to help you understand the unique challenges that our kids are facing. So you can go to impact360.org slash gen Z for more information. We've got a great episode for you today with Ian Harbour, who is the communication director of a local nonprofit in Denton, Texas, where he lives. He's currently getting his MDiv at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and he also works with the young people at his church. But what caught my eye is recently Ian wrote an article over at the Gospel Coalition about his deconstruction, but then his reconstruction um, that he actually called re-evangelical, which uh, actually that was the first time I'd heard that term, and I thought that was really interesting. So we've got a great story of deconstruction and reconstruction for you today, but I want to go ahead and bring Ian on. Uh, Ian, it's so great of you to to come on the podcast today and tell us your story. So welcome. Thanks, Elisa. Yeah, I'm really excited to be on and, and talk with you about this. Well, me too. And you're I think you're the third or fourth person we've had kind of in this series of of this type of a story. And when I say this type of a story, I don't mean to simplify and say that, you know, everybody's got the same story. Of course, everybody's story is different, but I just I just find stories like yours so encouraging because so often we only hear about the deconstructions. But as I learn of people who went through a process of deconstruction but reconstructed back to a historic faith or an orthodox faith, and you know, I use that as a broad umbrella term because people land in different places. Not everybody lands back in the same denomination, and often our faith looks different than it did before. Mine certainly looks different than it did uh, in the, the stream of Christianity that I grew up in. So let's start there. If you'll just 
give us a picture of like what stream of evangelical Christianity did you grow up in? What was life like for you? How involved were you? How committed was your family to the faith? Uh, just, just give us a picture of what life looked like for you growing up. Yeah, so um, life was kind of interesting growing up. So really, there's there's two kind of, I guess, chunks to my early life. There's like the first three years and everything else. So mm. when I was born, um, both my parents weren't in good places. They were really young. And so, um, you know, I think they got married basically because of me and then, um, you know, quickly divorced and my dad left and my mom kind of spiraled from there. And so um, when I was about three years old, that's when uh, I was taken from my, my mom and given to my grandparents and I went to live with them. And so they really I was raised by my grandparents. So I sort of had this quick little three years where a lot happened and then a relatively normal evangelical Christian childhood, um, but with my grandparents instead of with my parents. Um, so we went to um, a Bible church here in town, um, really conservative church, um, and it was a pretty normal thing. And I grew up in Christian schools my whole life as well. So I, I mean, I was very in the evangelical Christian world. That was what I was raised in between both my school and my church. And so, um, yeah, grew up in that and was not, I guess, you know, grew up in it pretty normal. But then right around junior high is when I started getting involved in the youth group at my church um, and was with them all throughout high school. And that was when I really got more involved in the church, starting kind of in the middle school, high school era. And um, yeah, I mean, I was super involved. I played drums in the worship band, but I couldn't keep time. So I wasn't a very good drummer. <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, did that and did uh, kind of tech team and, and, you know, got involved in a small group and all that stuff. But yeah, so it, it was non-denominational, but Kind of Baptisty, um, maybe like like a like a <laughs> non-denominational Baptisty kind of situation. Yeah, yeah. Like uh, I don't know why we're not Baptist, but apparently we're not. And so, <laughs> right. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. And uh, and so yeah, I mean, it was it, great church, great people, and lots of really good experiences there. But um, yeah, I, I think it was one of those things where I was the, the way that I was raised, and I don't know how much of this was taught and how much of this was caught. And I'm sure mm. a lot of it is a mix of both. Right. Sure, yeah. Um, but you know, it was one of those things where I, I felt like a lot of the Christianity that I was so, sold was, um, kind of like what Dallas Willard calls the gospel of sin management in a way it's you say a prayer and you're going to heaven and now you try really hard to be a good person until you get there kind yes, of thing. Yes. And, um, you know, I think, there's lots of things that happened kind of in this time between, um, you know, eighth grade, my grandmother passing away from cancer the day after Christmas, mm. um, to kind of a string of 12 funerals that I went to through a couple of years after that. Um, you know, and there's a lot going on there, but I, I think I kind of hit this point eventually in my faith where it was kind of, there's, if this is all it is, it, this is not much at all. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. It's there's, there's gotta be more, uh, if this faith is really what everybody says it is, then this can't be all that there is. That is, did you see 12 funerals in how many years? Two years? About two and a half years. Yeah. yeah. And, and that's a lot of death for a kid. Yeah. And this goes yeah. into a little bit of my deconstructions and reconstruction story a little bit. But it, the first one was my, my grandma who, who raised me. Yeah. Um, and then the last one was my mom who lost her battle with mental illness. And so now, I, you know, I didn't have a super close relationship with my mom, but 
it's just one of those things where mom, yeah. when you, when you, yeah, you know, when you lose your mom, it, it's one of those things you just, it, it's hard. Sure. Absolutely. So when you're, when you think back over your, your raising and specifically the picture of Christianity that you were given, I know you mentioned that you kind of, you, you articulated that well, kind of that sin management type Christianity that I think, I think that was kind of in the air back then. It was, it was a lot, there was a lot of legalism, uh, sort of like whoever, it was like a competition to see who could be the best, you know, at not sinning. <laughs> but I don't, I don't think that always came from, you know, just, I think sometimes that came from a good heart of really that people thinking that's really what it was about. And so that was the, the sort of the impetus that was driving a lot of people. But can you think back uh, to any experiences maybe that, you know, like an actual conversion experience? Do you think that there was ever a, a time in that uh, period of time or in that environment that you feel like you really did own it for yourself or do you think that maybe never happened or, or did it? Yeah, no, I definitely have an experience like that. I can think back to eighth grade where we went on this, uh, camp classic and, uh, it was a fall camp retreat and they had, it was like this week where they went through the whole Bible through skits really fast. That was like kind of the weekend, just kind of telling all the stories. And then, you know, of course, the pinnacle of that night is the cross. And so there was, it was like Saturday night or whatever, and they acted out the cross and all the leaders came out and they washed our feet. And it was, I mean, it was a really powerful moment. And um, I definitely remember that time. I mean, it was a really powerful time, really emotional time where um, it was probably one of the, the few early times where I do feel like God was really real to me in that moment. And, and I felt his presence and I, I, I felt him there. Um, and that was kind of the moment where I gave my life to Christ, so to speak. And, um, it was, it was after that, where I really tried to get serious about my faith, but I, exactly what you said, it was so, it was a lot of legalism. There was, so again, I was at a Christian school at the time and, um, you know, I remember trying to be like on fire for Christ. I'm a, you know, child in the nineties and two thousands, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So like on fire for Christ. And right. So I was like, I'm going to lead a Bible study at my Christian school, you know, cause nobody gets it but me or whatever. <laughs> and so, so I tried to do that. And I remember, um, teaching through Galatians and one of like my, um, you know, application points was basically like, I know we all can't be perfect, but is it, too much to ask to try or whatever, mm. which of course is like the opposite of the whole point of Galatians. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. It's like the Pharisees and, and the Judaizers and everything. But um, yeah, but I mean, that was definitely a time when it was really real to me was that like early high school period where um, I, I tried to do a lot for God, but um, it, it was honestly exhausting in a lot of ways. Like because works, it, it almost like, sounds works-based. Yeah, yeah, really workspace. I, I mean, it's one I knew intellectually is by grace through faith, but yeah. the way that worked itself out, and I think it's just because of a lot of what I saw, was you work really hard to do these things, to memorize long passages of scripture all at once, and to serve a million ways as, as much as you possibly can. And um, yeah, it, it was honestly exhausting. Yeah. In your article, you wrote something that really grabbed my attention. You said, the Christian tradition I grew up in for all the wonderful things it gave me was not prepared for a generation of kids with access to high-speed internet. And I can really relate with that because I think that, you know, as I've told my story of deconstruction and just sitting at a table in a, in a classroom in a progressive church, hearing questions for the first time 
that not only did I not know what the answers were, but I didn't even know the questions existed. And so I think, you know, I really can relate with this. Would you just expand on that a little more? What do you mean by that? That as much, you know, they gave you all these wonderful things, but they just didn't, they weren't prepared for the internet boom. Yeah, and, and absolutely on on all the wonderful things that gave me, you know, having this conversation, there's there's names and faces I'm thinking of, and, and it's definitely not every person that, you know, um, I felt like wasn't there in some way or whatever. But um, yeah, I mean, it's one of those things where when you're in that environment where um, doubts aren't always welcome or um, the system that's set up is rigid enough to where if you, you know, um, the Hawk Nelson singer, he just posted where, yeah. you know, you pull the thread and the sweater and, you know, the sweater goes away and all of a sudden there's no sweater anymore. If you, if there's no space to do that and now you're, 14, 15, 16 years old, only child. And the only thing you have to do is like YouTube and Google at night. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Yeah, then sure. you're Googling these questions. This is who you're going to because you don't really know who else you can trust with them. And so, yeah, I mean, I spent um, a lot of time seeking out a lot of these questions. And, you know, I, I remember specifically there was this one um, series of YouTube videos. I'm, you might be familiar with that. I'm not sure. It was kind of one of the original YouTube deconversion stories. And this guy, he told his story and he, um, you know, kind of described his Christian history. And, you know, with a few details here and there, it was different, but it was really, really similar to to my story. He was mm-hmm. obviously real in his faith. Right. Um, and the way he described it was, you know, I, I want to respect these views. I want to um, give them the um, respect that they're due. Um, but at the same time, talk about kind of my growth from the faith of my childhood into where I am now, which was atheism. And so the way he described it was there's not one thing that you're going to say that's not going to knock down a Christian's faith. It's really set up in kind of a network of beliefs that it's trying to take different nodes off the network in order to shut it all down, right? And so that's really what he did. I mean, that that was a lot of, then he led you through, here's, you know, here's a belief and here's kind of all the counter beliefs. And um, a lot of them were, you know, creation and prayer and morality and a personal relationship with God and other Christians and logical arguments. And of course, it was all held together by the Bible. And the Bible was sort of that note in the middle that held it all together. And I remember watching that, like, I think it took me a couple nights to get through because it was a lot of videos and I watched them really late at night. But I remember every night watching those and it was, I mean, it was just like that earth shattering thing. It was the sweater where each time he pulled on it, it was like more of my faith was unraveling until finally I remember getting to the end of that being like, man, if there's anything left here, it's not a lot. And mm. I don't know if I can in good conscience continue to believe these things knowing what I know now, because, you know, a lot of what it is, it's basically like, once you know, you can't unknow, once you go there, you can't go back. And and that's kind of what I felt like at that time. That's interesting you would say that, because that's part of my story, too. And uh, when, when I was in the class, I remember the pastor who was an agnostic, um, but he said, you know, what we're going to talk about in here, you will never be able to unknow. And I remember that that just really got in me very deep. And it's true. I mean, to this day, now I've, I've sort of made peace with those questions now, you know, I've, I've sought out answers. And of course, not every question has an answer, but, you know, for, for certain ones that where there are, you know, I've, I've made peace with those, but 
it, it is true. It's like once you go there, it's always in your mind. It's always in your in your in your head and your heart. Um, so, how old were you when when that happened? Yeah, I mean, I was pretty young when all this is happening. You know, I was in early high school, so yeah. you know, fifteen, sixteen years old. So, yeah. what were some of the questions that that you had that sort of led you to Google or and YouTube? Yeah, um, you know, I think it was a lot of things just around um, contradictions in the Bible and science. And again, a lot of this too, here's the, here, okay, so here's the funny thing. And I'm, I know you know this, but it's like the way YouTube even works is like you look at one thing on YouTube and they're going to pull up that like recommended video. You know yeah. what I mean? Oh, yeah. And, so, and, and it can be completely counter to what you're actually looking at. And so if there's any like doubts that are in the back of my mind that I may have not brought to the forefront yet, then I, I think that video basically popped up on that. And I was like, what is that? You know what I mean? Yeah. And clicked on it. And so it was that spark of curiosity of things that were already there. Yeah. Um, but it was, I was thinking, you know, I was already having doubts about like contradictions in the Bible and, um, questions about science and like, man, did this whole thing really happen in six days, you know? Yeah. And, um, and, and those are kind of the starting points. And then, you know, the way algorithms work, I think it kind of, pushed me into, um, into that era a little bit. It's like YouTube was the, uh, the opposite of the knitter, like, just like here, I'll pull this string and I'll pull this string and give you that. Yeah. And, you know, and when you're, you know, yeah. you're looking at, you're looking at things or, um, you know, even at that time it, I, I was a Christian, I am, a, you know, and so I could be watching a sermon, but the next thing that pops up is a question I had in my head about yeah. that sermon. You know what I mean? Sure. And so it's kind of interesting how all of that works. But yeah, I mean, I think those were kind of where my, my doubts were already, but I hadn't um, had any fuel on the fire, so to speak, at that point. Did you ever verbalize your doubts to anybody in your in your circle or in your community? Or did you just sort of feel like you couldn't do that? Yeah, it was hard. You know, um, I don't know how much I really vocalized it. I know it was felt in my community. Um, I was, you know, I was in a small group at the time and I was being mentored by a guy in the church at the time. And it was just one of those things where the more doubts I had, the more I felt separate, separate from them, the more I separated myself, the more I kind of sure. isolated myself. And so, um, you know, that's when a lot of like my friend group at school started to shift and um, I was showing up to church less and less and maybe, you know, and then I'm 16 years old. So I'm saying I'm going to church, but I'm, I'm actually not going to church. And so, right, you know, sure. um, and, and so that was kind of, I, I, I didn't have a lot of people to walk to. Maybe I did, but I didn't feel like I, I did at the time. So it was really more of, as I progressed in my doubts, I progressed in my isolation too. and just kind of separated myself from that group. Yeah. So that, you know, it sounds like this was sort of the springboard into your deconstruction process. And uh, it's it's interesting to me that, you know, you, you landed in a more of a progressive type of Christianity rather than an atheism, which can often be part of the deconstruction story. Talk a little bit about that. What, what was it that uh, led you into that community? What did you find attractive about it? Uh, what was your experience like in, in the progressive Christian uh, movement? Yeah, well, and, you know, like all stories, it's not perfectly linear. It's pretty windy and everything. But, um, you know, for a while there, I would say for about a year, pretty there was a pretty quick progression from um, where I, I, if you ask me, I probably told you I was an atheist. 
to uh, Hopeful Agnostic, which that probably sounds familiar to you too. It does sound familiar uh, to me. Yeah. And um, to then there was a time when I was kind of like researching more Eastern universalist spirituality stuff. Um, and none of that, none of that really held much water, but it was just kind of stuff I was working through. Um, and then, so to be totally honest with you, I don't have much of an explanation for it. It is very much a God thing, but kind of towards the end of that year. And it was a couple months after my, um, my mom passed away and it was actually 10 years ago this month, funny enough that you, uh, that we're talking right now, but he, um, I was, I was sitting in my room and I still had my Bible on my on my nightstand, even though I never read it that whole year. And I remember looking at it one night and thinking, I should read that. And then my second thought was, that's weird. Why would I do that? I don't like that thing anymore. I don't believe that thing anymore. And I felt that more and more all week long. So finally I did. I just decided to go ahead and open up and read it. Um, and so whenever I opened it up, I remember turning to a random passage. I don't remember what it was. It was there was a couple I turned to that night. It was like James and Psalms and Philippians. Uh, but everything I hit kind of went against a lot of like what my perception of Christians were at the time of judgmental, legalistic, hypocritical. It was all the stuff I never really was taught. Um, and I was like, man, this is not what I thought it was. Um, I should, I should read more of this and just kind of see what's there. So I remember reading all the way through Matthew and I got done with Matthew and I was like, I don't, know totally where I am with, is Jesus God? Is he not? I don't know. But I really like the guy. Mm -hmm. I think this guy's awesome. I think he cares about the things I care about. He's not who I thought he was. He's not who I feel like I was told he was. He's way more than that. Um, I don't know if he's God, but man, it would be cool if he was. (laughs) And um, So I kind of had this moment with God in my room where I was like, God, I don't know how much of this I buy anymore. I don't even totally know if you're real. But if we're going to do this, I want to do it for real. And I want to be totally intellectually honest with where I'm at and where this takes me, I'm going to let it take me. And it's the only experience I have like this. And it's not anything super weird, but I just remember feeling really strongly that he said, I can work with that. And I was like, cool. If you can work with that, I can work with that. (laughs) And so that was one of those things where I hopped right back in. And for a few months, I went back to what I knew. And so it was a lot of um, conservative evangelicalism. It was a lot of, I was watching like a ton of Mark Driscoll at the time and everything and and all of that. Um, but a lot of that still just didn't really sit really well with me. Um, and so I tried to read wider than I was. And again, I'm in high school, so as why I'm not reading Schleiermacher or anything like that, but I'm, I'm trying to read wider than what I'm used to. And someone gave me Velvet Elvis by Rob Bell. And so I read Velvet Elvis by Rob Bell. And, you know, he talks about like the trampoline versus the brick wall. And you want to have a trampoline faith where if you pull out a string, people can still jump on it instead of the brick wall where you can run into it and get hurt and all that stuff. And if you pull out a brick, it all falls down. Which, and I think there's something to that as well. The problem is when you pull out all the strings, there's nothing left to jump on. Um, But... So there was that, and that kind of introduced me to, um, you know, Rob Bell, Brian McLaren, Don Miller, Red Blue Like Jazz, um, Pete Rollins. I don't know if you're familiar with Peter Rollins. A little but, bit. I've not know, read him, kind of, but yeah, I know of him. He's kind of like the philosopher of that mm-hmm. camp, and I listen to a ton of Pete Rollins stuff. Um, and then, of course, Rob's book, Love Wins, came out. 
uh, and was all the rage back then. And so I got that and I read that and that was, that was kind of the one also where it brought me that notch deeper into because he never says he's a universalist right. in it, but I mean, it's universalism. Um, and that was pretty much what I ran with for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, that book, um, and just kind of that whole camp, it, it was a lot of Rob Bell and Pete Rollins. Yeah. And it, I, uh, I remember too, early, early before I even landed at the progressive church, someone had given me, uh, Don Miller's, um, I think it was called searching for God knows what, I don't know if you read that one. But, I, I have it, but I haven't read it. So Yeah. yeah. Well, I, before I kind of, you know, I think there were some books out around that time that it was before, I think, at least in my analysis and what I've observed about where progressive Christianity has gone from there, is people were still sort of not fully there, you know? So right. they were starting to suggest some of these ideas. And I remember reading that Don Miller book and feeling like, if I could have written a book, like it would be this book. It just, it resonated with me so deeply. I'd be very interested to go back and read it today now that I've kind of watched where the movement has gone and even been through the experiences I've been through. But but I sort of related with what you wrote in your article where you said when you read Blue Like Jazz, it opened you up to a world of grace that you hadn't experienced before. And I, I sort of, that's kind of how I felt when I read uh, Searching for God Knows What. Uh, because I think in that book, he was even highlighting the the beauty of the wedding of Christianity and how, you know, like the bride saying to the bridegroom, I do. And there was just something so beautiful about it. But you also note that it was a it also exposed you to a world that was free from Orthodox doctrine. So it was sort of like it gave you all this grace, but also just completely took the the guardrails down as far as any sort of a of a boundary for doctrine or anything like that. And um, you write that you then kind of became um, into the liturgists and that in those podcasts. And so talk about your time. How many years would you say, or, or how, I mean, I don't know if it even was years or how much time were you sort of in that uh, space? And what did that feel like for you as you were working through things in that, in that environment? Yeah, well, and I would say that this whole time I was really wrestling with a lot of this for probably six or seven years. Mm-hmm. Um, but, and, and off and on in different ways and different times, you know, but yeah. And, you know, talking that's exactly how I feel about, um, blue like jazz, you know what I mean? In, in the paragraph that I referenced in there, he says something along the lines of when I lay in bed at night, I need, and I realize that my math will never add up. Mm-hmm. I just need to know that God loves me. There's something true about that. Yeah, you know yeah. what I mean? There's something true about that we'll never have our doctrine perfectly sorted yeah. out. And God loves us despite our faults and our errors. Yeah. But when you when you have that and then you follow the trajectory, exactly what, what you said, of kind of where that camp went, then that idea gets magnified into, well, because that's true, I can shed all of these doctrines and still call myself a Christian. And I think that's what I, I ran into was trying to, yeah. And, and like you said, was, um, one of my favorite musicians, Michael Gunger, right around that time, you know, is when he started the liturgist podcast, right as I was, um, hitting college. And so, yeah, I mean, listen to that from the beginning, every episode for years. Mm-hmm. And, um, I think that was when you can even follow the trajectory of that podcast of still starting out kind of in, 
remotely orthodox land and then just chipping away at, well, the Bible's not God's word, it's human words about God mm-hmm. and all of these different things. And is Christ really divine? Well, maybe he is, but he's in touch with his the spark of the divine within himself, yeah. like we all should be, right? The right, cosmic yeah. Christ, he introduced, you know, me to Richard Rohr and all of that. So, yeah, I mean, I think that's that was the trajectory of it all. Is where, There was kind of this moment where, on the one hand, yeah, absolutely, I was opened up to a true thing about grace, but following the trajectory, realizing that it is possible to believe in things with the name of Jesus, with the name of Christianity, that actually once you shed enough, it, it, it isn't the same Jesus anymore. So when you were uh, listening to the liturgists and you were reading these books and uh, finding comfort in people who were going through a very similar thing as you, what, what was it that made you kind of say, okay, this isn't, this isn't it? There had to be some kind of either a moment or or some kind of realization where you're like, this isn't giving me what I need. Can you talk a little about that? Yeah, um, I think it was kind of, it's funny because there's a lot of kind of parallels that happened. And I think it's it's really similar. And it's a couple of things. One, hitting kind of a dead end of you know, it was, I was finishing up college and I was about to get married and I kind of hit that same spot of there's gotta be, if this is it, there's gotta be more to this because I feel like it's not providing the answers that I thought it would. Um, and a couple of things happened right around that same time. One was the 2016 election, which was, um, a very interesting year to say the least where, you know, it, it was difficult to see a lot of the people who taught me certain values um, vote in a way that I felt like didn't align with those values. Yeah. And that was a difficult thing to watch. Um, and at the same time, about six months later is when, now a little bit more than six months, probably nine months later, my grandfather passed away in a, in a plane crash. Uh, tragically. So once that happened, and and after that happened too, my dad and I had a a big falling out. And so once that happened, there was, I kind of hit that dead end. I was really thrown off by the election. And the election is important too, because not only was I confused by the conservatives in my life, I was very, very confused by the progressives in my life as well. Um, Because I felt like their response, even though I agreed with them, was just as fundamentalist and just as legalistic and just as um, political, political and puritanical as the as the other side that I was frustrated with, and so I, I really felt kind of homeless in this space where wow, you guys, you really tied your faith, I feel like, to conservative politics, and then at least in my view, this kind of felt like a selling out. But you guys, I thought you were liberated and free and tolerant and accepting of everybody, but wow, that's actually not true at all. And so your faith is wrapped up in this as well. I don't know if our faith should be wrapped up in either of these. And that was really concerning for me. And so then when, that's really when I started searching for more formal theological education. And I found a great program that I had some friends go through here in town at a, at a different church than what I was at. Um, and then, um, then my grandfather passed away in that plane crash. So I was in another season of suffering. And so it was this weird, like politics and 
life stage and restlessness with just kind of meaning and trying to find out purpose and, and all of that. And then suffering all wrapped up in one. And then I go actually learn theology for the first time. And that was really, um, I would say like the beginning of my true reconstruction, not where I wasn't just frustrated with the system or whatever, but where I learned theology in a way that I felt like laid a foundation I could stand on. Well, that's that's powerful, and I, and there's something powerful also that just now that we're kind of on the subject of suffering, which, you know, it, as you're speaking here, it strikes me that you've really experienced a lot of suffering in your young life. You know, a lot of death, a lot of um, disappointment, and things like that. And and I, at some point in the article, you referenced that you weren't given a, a real robust theology of suffering in the evangelical church you grew up in, and uh, you know, I think that. I think a lot of us could probably say that. I think that um, with the, you know, and I don't know, I'm just coming at it from the stream I grew up in. There was a lot of prosperity gospel talk. Like my parents didn't buy into that. And it just kind of wasn't, but it was in the air a little bit. And then I even remember in my early 20s um, going to some meetings that were really preaching that prosperity gospel. And, and so I think this whole idea that, you know, if you become a Christian, God wants you to be um, happy. And, and so it doesn't give you like this real robust theology of suffering, but I have to quote this line from your article. When you started learning theology, one of your teachers said this, we do theology in the light so we can stand on it in the dark. And that is just so powerful. So you, at this time in your life, you write, you were doing theology and standing on it in the dark. Mm -hmm. um, talk about that a little bit. Yeah. And what's interesting is, you know, the when I talk about not having a robust theology of suffering, I don't feel like, it, for me at least, it was the prosperity gospel. Mm. In fact, my church was very anti-prosperity gospel. Okay, yeah. It was kind of either, it, it was a lot of avoidance of suffering or just kind of dismissing it, kind of a lot of, well, one day I'll fly away anyways, and this will all be over, you know? Yeah, sure. And, and there was no real, like I said, theology of it, of what is suffering? What is the purpose of suffering? What does God do for us in suffering? How does he redeem it? A lot of um, 2 Corinthians 1 is really helpful with that, just in and of itself. And um, so, yeah, doing theology in the dark while trying to stand on in the dark. I mean, it, it was, I wish I had that foundation before all of that suffering, but it was really great learning all of that through it because you, so there's a book that we read in that program called the drama of doctrine and it's by Kevin Van Hooser. And the whole idea is that, um, the world and creation and our lives and everything that God made is God's drama. And doctrine is us learning the script so that we can play our part well, so we flourish in God's story. That's kind of the point of that book. And that helps so much because it's not that, it, it's, it's kind of not what Don Miller said, right? It's not that doctrine is this getting your math right so that when you show up at the gates, you can hand God your test and you get in, right? Yes. It's really learning how to live in God's world. Um, and so when you actually stand on these truths, it's not this intellectual exercise to get the right answers. Right. It's hope that you can stand on in the darkest times. And I think that was something that learning those things really exposed to me about the more progressive side of things was this it's essentially just 
a reverse moralistic therapeutic deism of where if you be a good person, but the way we mean be a good person, not the way they mean be a good Mm -hmm. person and therapeutic, but instead of just feeling good about yourself um, by going to church all the time, you feel good about yourself through positive affirmations and meditation and therapy, which again, I don't hate all of that either. I'm for some of that, but in and of that by itself, it can't hold the weight of real human suffering. Whereas, surprise, surprise, the 2,000 years of church history and Orthodox doctrine actually can do that. And I think that was one of the biggest surprises to me because even though my faith does look different than what it did the first go-around, the, the faith that is passed down is still able to hold the weight of all of our lives. Like what Peter says, uh, we have everything that we need in Christ. And that was probably the biggest revelation to me. Well, that's beautiful. And, you know, I think about when I was working on my book and writing my book, you know, it's it, there's a lot of doctrinal points in the book. And it was really important to me to look back through church history to even, you know, first century, second century Christians. And like, did they just, like you said, were they just marking, checking off boxes and like making their list of, of doctrines to make sure that their theology is right, so God's okay with them? And and it's it's not, you know, and, and I'm not saying that that's entirely a straw man. I think that there probably are Christians who maybe lean that way, and then we need to correct that, you know? But for these first and second century Christians, these these weren't just a set of intellectual propositions. These were life and death truths that they were banking their life on, that they were being, you know, at times persecuted for, that they were willing to be beaten and imprisoned for, not just because they were checking boxes, but because this was the reality of of being with Christ and being in Christ and being uh, transformed by the renewing of their mind and conformed to his image day by day. And and I I tried to make that point in my book, and I think you've just made it beautifully, that it's it's like these... These beliefs are precious beliefs. These are these are not just intellectual. You don't just give intellectual assent and then everything's fine. It's it's like these these are deep truths and and I think that that might just be something that I don't know if if we're going to under like progressives and whatever the opposite of that is. I don't like to use the word conservative, but maybe his, use the word historic Christian. Maybe that's right. what we don't understand about each other. But um you know, I've talked a little bit about moralistic therapeutic deism on the podcast before, and and you again, I I keep referring to your article because you made so many great points. But you kind of you were talking about a lot in your case, especially you sort of left evangelicalism because you were seeing that there, this idea that you know God just wants you to be happy and he's not really all that involved in your life unless you need him to answer a prayer and then he'll do that and then he'll leave you alone to do what you want and you know as long as you're happy everything's good and you know so so then you you go to progressive christianity to counter that because you you rightly recognize that's a shallow version of christianity um but you say what you found was more of the same just with new definitions and so you left one version of moralistic therapeutic deism and found yourself uh in in another and um so maybe talk about that a little bit like how did the progressive views sort of mirror do the mirror image of that moralistic therapeutic deism that left you just as empty as what you left. Yeah, well, and it kind of goes hand in hand with the intellectualizing that you were just talking about. You know, I think what I grew up with was a, a lot of intellectualizing. And so God felt 
distant most mm. of the time, which is deism. He's, he's very far away. And I think a lot of that, you know, could be explained away by trying to talk about how God is holy and he's transcendent and he's creator and above all. But it really paints God in a lot of ways to be far away, not really attached to anything that we're doing here. Um, and so with that, what you're really left is moralism and kind of just try to be as happy as you can to get through life or minimize suffering as much as you can, going back to that suffering thing that we're talking about. And so there was that side of things that I grew up with, and that's what I kind of recognized was not holding the weight of a lot of what I was going through and a lot of the questions I had. And so, but going on to the other side of things, it I just kind of realized there was a lot of the same thing where, you know, you replace moralism with wokeness. And again, there's a huge conversation going on when we're um, recording this about wokeness. I'm not against that. I think there's a lot of really good things for that. But that became the new moralism that, you know, it's it's the a lot of times like progressive, you know, don't smoke, don't chew, don't go with girls that do. Mm -hmm. uh, but on the other side of things, make sure that you have all your ducks on a row on all these progressive issues when a lot of us are still in the process of a lot of that. Mm -hmm. And then therapeutic, there's a lot of actual therapy talk in the progressive wing. Again, I went to therapy. I'm for it. But it's this idea that you can almost replace a pastor with a therapist or even worse, the Holy Spirit with a ther therapist. And they can solve all of your problems. And um, again, I did therapy. It's amazing. Everyone should go do it. But it, it's not going to solve all of those problems. There is a sin problem that needs solving. And then, like I said, the deism, at that point, because, because progressive morals are more ambiguous than a lot of maybe conservative morals you know, on certain issues, God does in a lot of ways feel far off, except in one instance, which is when God is with the oppressed, which again, I believe that he is. But that's the kind of the only instance that they see God as really imminent in people's lives, whereas kind of both of these camps need to see God as both transcendent above all things and imminent in every aspect of our lives. And I feel like they, it, it, God feels far and removed from both of them, um, where God feels, um, in my article, you know, I wrote Elizabeth Gilbert. She wrote the, that the only thing left is God dwells within you as you. And then you, there's no way to distinguish between you and God. And so at that point, you are God. Uh, and, and the conservatives, I feel like they don't, the guard is far away. And so it, it gets really tough. Yeah. That's an interesting point. And, uh, you know, a lot of Christians might be listening to you going, man, that sounds so like radically out there, you know, for, to, for somebody to actually call themselves a Christian, but then sort of equate themselves with God. But you are not exaggerating. I just read uh, Glennon Doyle's book, Untamed. And all through, you know, it, the one thing I do whenever I read a book, and I'm, we're going to be doing a podcast on that book um, with Ann Kennedy coming up here pretty soon. But um, one thing, so I don't want to give too much away, but one thing I always try to do when I read a book is first things first, before I start getting into the, the points, is what is the worldview of this person? You know, what, what is, how do they see the world? What, what grid are they putting their ideas through? And uh, now, Glennon Doyle does say she's, she won't let, she's not really letting go of the title Christian, um, but a lot of progressive Christians follow her and, and her love the book and all of this. But she, I mean, that's what she teaches. She teaches in the book that, you know, she de describes her version of prayer as a type of meditation where she 
uh, sinks lower into herself and then she finds what she calls the knowing and the knowing has a capital N and she basically says, I don't care what you want to call it. If you want to call it yourself, if you want to call it God, you can call it, her friend calls it Sebastian, <laughs> you know, like whatever you want to call it. And, and yeah, there really is almost this, um, equivocation of self with God that not, certainly not all progressive Christians are going to go along with, but um, but I'm seeing that more and more it, when I'm reading blog posts and, and reading books written by people kind of involved with that movement. And, and so, yeah, you're, you're definitely not exaggerating there. And of yeah, course, and oh, I, I would love to, you know, even I almost clarify what I just said sure. a few minutes ago, because I think you, you helped me a lot. I'll be honest. This is my first podcast. Oh, you're done. doing great. But, um, but I, I feel like what I ran into is, is that is one side really, um, emphasizes the transcendence of God and the other really emphasize the imminence of God, where one God is really far away and distant and the other one is, it, it is impossible to pretty much distinguish between God and yourself. And I think that is more of what I was trying to say when I was talking about the kind of the reverse moralistic therapeutic deism, whereas deism for one side, I think is God is not that involved until we get to him one day and when he saves you. Mm-hmm. And then the other one is God is so in you that there is no difference. And yeah. so you kind of end up with the same effect of either God is far away and we'll get there one day or God is in me and me. And so I kind of have a blank check to do what I want as long as it yeah. doesn't hurt anybody. And I've even heard some progressive pastors even say, just what we're doing right now is prayer. You know, it's like there's, there's, you know, like we're talking and so God's here and so we're praying. And so there's almost this redefinition of prayer and everything too, based on that view of God. And that's a very interesting point actually that you just made there. So uh, when, uh, was there a moment when you were sort of caught up in this progressive paradigm um, where you just were like, was it a gradual kind of coming back to Orthodox doctrine or was it sort of like a moment where you were like, I'm, I'm out or I'm, I'm changing this or, or t- talk us through that. I think it was more gradual. I think I, as I learned more about kind of the doctrines, the foundational doctrines of, of my faith. And what's interesting about that is too, especially a lot of what I, what I realized was a lot of what I deconstructed from wasn't even the essential doctrines of the faith per se. Some of them were, but I was kind of what I was handed as Orthodox Christianity was all of the second tier things. And no one ever really took the time to explain to me the Trinity, the two natures of Christ, the inspiration and authority of the Bible, the defense and the um, the meaning of the resurrection and, and all of these different things. And how to even read the Bible in a way that's not just a manual or a rule book, but is actually God's word. And so I think one of those first things that I learned was like the doctrine of the Trinity and some of these things and how the Bible actually fits together as a story that leads to Jesus and the two natures of Christ, everything, everything I just said. And you just kind of realize you're like, these are the core doctrines that somehow I missed where if you, if God's not Trinity, we're not talking about the same God, but again, it's not an intellectual exercise. It's the Trinity is life or death for this world, for who God is, for me, it's, it's a crucial thing for the character and nature of God. And so I wouldn't say it was a moment. It was kind of this gradual progression of my eyes being open to a lot of things that I feel like I had missed. Um, and what was helpful about that was it wasn't 
here are these narrow truths that you have to believe. It was, here's the wide world of Orthodox Christianity. Here's what Christians for centuries and millennia have agreed upon. There's room in here to move, but that there are boundaries. The creeds and the councils learned all about that, and that was super helpful for me as well. But here are the core things that we have always believed in our faith and why they're important, not just so you can check it off. And so as I started to learn more about that, I think there was more of just kind of a, a angst that started to grow in me. Um, the, the church I was at at the time wasn't—I know, I know, I'm about to say this. I know there's no such thing as being atheological. Everyone's, everyone has theology. But they tried really, really hard to be atheological, mm. where they didn't take sides and they didn't have stances. Um, mm. But I think I just really felt an angst growing in me of, man, we are— robbing people of the richness of our faith and our tradition. And I felt like we were setting people up either one to live their lives in moralistic therapeutic deism or two deconstruct the way I did because they would have questions and want to learn more. And there was no guide to actually get them back into that faith or explain to them the importance of it. And so it, it wasn't this one moment, but I just kind of felt it in me more and more of, man, this stuff is important. And if I would have known some of this years ago, maybe that would have, have saved me all this time and relationships and doubt and, you know, but yeah, it, it wasn't a moment. It, it took a, it took a while, yeah. but it was really helpful. So as we close out here, I, I receive emails all the time from either parents who have kids of your age or younger, high school, college, and up to, you know, 30, even into the 40s, that have kids that are deconstructing. They don't know what to do. They don't know how to interact. Um, can you give some advice for for parents or even just people who have friends who are deconstructing? Uh, what should we do? How? What should our posture be? What, what can the church do better? What can we do better in our relationships uh, to to help people who are going through this? Yeah, well, and I think that's a really personal question, too, because, you know, my story, I feel like started really early and it has to do with, you know, life situations that I went through and loss and being an only child and all that stuff. Um, But I'm kind of at that point in life now where a lot of my friends are starting their deconstruction and it's like, okay, I... I was ahead of the curve, but now here they come. I thought they were staying Orthodox and I was going crazy. Now I'm back in Orthodoxy and they're deconstructing. And so, yeah, I mean, that's a really personal question for sure. And man, I think it's just one of those things where if you are going to one, reject what you came from, I, I understand that, but the tradition of our faith is run so deep and so wide that it really is important to read not just progressives who, it's so hard to say, I mean, that that make you feel better about yourself, that maybe they talk about things that, yes, are true, that we need to wake up to. But at the same time, when you divorce those things from the person of Christ, from who God is, from the authority of the Bible, you really have no ground to stand on anymore because that's where all the foundation for the things that you care about come from in the first place. So I think for, if, you know, if there's parents listening to this or something like that, there, on the one hand, there has to be so much grace. There has to be a lot of grace for what they're going through and the questions that they're having. And I think it's starting with empathy to listen to them and hear what they're, they're questioning and wondering and, and believing. 
Um, and trying to get at the root of why are they there? What is going on? Don't be scared by their questioning X belief, but try to understand their heart and where they're at. And then it might take some time to do the work of even, well, why do I believe that? Why is that an essential tenet of our faith? And digging into that and exploring, not just, oh, but if you don't believe this, you won't go to heaven one day, but actually this, you should, you should believe this because it's beautiful and it makes sense of the world and, it make, and it's coherent and it will tie everything that you care about together and it will bring peace to your life because you're connected with God and, it'll, and it can hold the weight of your life. And so I just think there's a lot of deep work, honestly, for everyone to do, because um, I think there's reasons why people seek out progressive Christianity. And I think there's reasons why an Orthodox faith makes for a more coherent worldview. And more importantly, you're actually connected and abiding in Christ. And so there's a lot there, but I just think we have to be patient with each other. We have to have grace for each other and not talk past each other out of fear where you're, you're concerned about the trajectory someone's on, but actually try to understand. And then don't just win an argument, but reveal the beauty of your beliefs. Because I don't think, I hate debating. <laughs> I got invited to a debate thing one time and I did not want to go because I, I hate debating. <laughs> I don't think anybody converts that way. I don't think anybody's convinced that way. I think people are drawn to what they find beautiful. And Orthodox doctrine is beautiful. And if we mine for it, and if we dig for it, and if we find it, and we pull out those diamonds, and we turn them into light, I do think people will see the beauty that is found ultimately in Christ. That was powerful. Ian, thank you so much for being on the show today. I, I, I really think a lot of people are going to be very encouraged when they hear your story. Thanks for having me on, Elisa. This was fun. Hey, thanks so much for listening to the podcast today. Or if you're joining us on YouTube, thanks for watching. Don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel and click the bell to get notifications every time we release a new video. Or you can subscribe on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you're listening. You can also go to alisachilders.com and click the subscribe button. We would appreciate it if you would leave five-star reviews on iTunes and check out patreon.com slash alisachilders to find out how you could come alongside the ministry in a more meaningful way. Thanks and have a great day. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.